Thank you for tuning in to the Mile 40 podcast. I am Beshoy Tadros, the author of Break Barriers and Audacious, both of which are sold on Amazon. And I invite you to join me as I engage with guests to discuss those bounce back moments that we encounter on our personal journey. Mile 40 is a forum to learn about how athletes, professionals, and leaders of all backgrounds stare down moments in life where the only option is to rise up. The Mile 40 podcast strives to remind listeners that the comeback is always greater than the setback. Welcome back to another episode of the Mile 40 podcast. Um, The show continues to experiment and I'm really excited with regards to what we have for you in store today. Uh, The joke here is that you have three guys who are pretty used to talking on a microphone. You would think this is going to come natural, but we're going to dive in and see. Um, I'm happy to share that today I have Richard Harris and Scott Lease. They are the host of the Surf and Sales podcast. To give you a little bit of insight on the podcast, everyone is looking for help in sales, yet so few are willing to give it unselfishly. They've teamed up to bring their best advice from their own life experiences, real-world job experiences, and what they see sales reps and leaders do right and equally do wrong so you can be the best at your craft as well. Thank you both for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. No worries. Scott, what do you think of that? That was my script. I wrote that for us. So he could... uh... I mean, it's amazing, but the delivery was fantastic. So I think you're hired to uh, do our intro from now on. Appreciate it. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate you both. And and so for the audience, the funny thing is I usually send an email out to the guests on the show just to give me some information in advance. This is the first time that I had people refuse to give me a bio. Um, and uh, in fact... Uh, Richard suggested that I kick off this show by asking each of you uh, to give your own bio um, and and kind of break it down on here. Well, you go first, Richard, since you rejected his uh, request. Oh, please. You would have rejected his request too. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, you know what? Let's mix things up here. Richard, why don't you give me Scott's bio? Scott, you give me Richard's bio. There we go. The funny, the best joke about Scott is having known him for so many years is I still don't know what he fucking does for a living. (laughs) Even though I convinced him to to quit his W two and and get a you know consulting gig, but no, seriously, uh, Scott is a lifetime practitioner of overcoming challenges and obstacles, uh, physically, mentally, medically. Um, he's a a natural competitive athlete and a great mind in sales. Um, he understands how to help and build someone's self esteem and. Wisdom. He's got a degree in psychology, which is the one thing I wish I had done differently in college. Um, and he's been, a, I don't know, six time VP of sales, four time founder. Um, and he shares in the Ross form away, uh, possible. I mean, he just, he'll share anything. You ask him anything, he'll tell you. And so, um, fortunate to have him at the, not just a, a partner in some business stuff, but really is a really good friend in my life. So that's that's my bio for Scott. Scott, it looks like he was about to shed a tear sharing his bio. No, it's, clear he, it look, it's clear he really likes you. I hope you can uh, can match the emotion there. Yeah, I got I got I got to deliver here. Uh, Richard is one of the most caring and empathetic sales leaders out there. He has been running his own training, uh, sales training, and consulting business for. I think about a dozen years or so now, if that's right. 
um, does trainings all over the world with big, small, medium-sized companies. Uh, prior to that, he was a sales leader in the corporate world, got started way back in the day in sales in the newspaper advertising business. Uh, graduated from U of A, so he's a, a rival of mine since I went to Arizona State. And uh, co-founded uh, Surf and Sales Summit, which is a, a mini sales and leadership conference in Costa Rica that we jointly uh, host for five, six years now. We're on our 10th event and a uh, real good friend of mine, of course, and uh, soon to be an accomplished author as he puts the finishing touches on his uh, first book. I love that. Uh, are we allowed to ask you questions about the book? Absolutely. I can, I can tell you that I think my gestation period is almost equal to that of an elephant, like four years. Like, <laughs> how long I've been working on this thing. Well, why don't you give us a little bit of insight with regards to the project? Um, it is... Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a project talking about sales and understanding the sales mindset, both at a personal and professional level. And then it has a bunch of tactics in it too. Like it, it's, it's actually a playbook too. Like, I think it's, I'm a big fan of um, very use case oriented stuff. So things like how to negotiate with procurement, right? Nobody knows how to do that. Nobody's ever talked about it. Do you know procurement actually goes to sales training to learn how to negotiate with us? How many of us have ever done that? Um, how to understand the mindset, how to understand um, how people think as humans and how we bring the humanity back into sales. That's probably the high-level version of it. And it's a journey. So. Love it. You know, I think one thing that the three of us can really agree upon is that sales is a critical factor of essentially every element in life. You know, I, I know that um, on the outside now, uh, someone might look at me and, and just look at my corporate profile and think, oh, he works in sales. But the truth of the matter is, I've worked in sales since I was you know, a young boy um, trying to make friends. Um, and so I, I think that what you all are doing with regards to your platform is extremely critical, not just from success in, in the corporate world, but um, you know, even beyond it in, in day-to-day life. Um, and I want to dig deeper with regards to um, your personal journeys, and we'll build up to how you decided to come together here. So, uh, Scott, let me kick off with you. Uh, I know that at one point, um, and even today, um, you've been very involved in, in athletics. Can we share a little bit about uh, your background there and, and how it played a role in your life? Yeah, I, I grew up playing every sport imaginable as a little kid. Um, had to kind of narrow it down a little bit into high school and then had the opportunity to play Division One soccer or Division One tennis and could never find a school that would let me play both. So a little glimpse into my personality, rather than going to one of those big schools, I said, the hell with you and went to a small Division Two school where I could play both. So I had a, essentially a full ride uh, to play t- tennis and soccer in college and played some soccer after school. And it's just been a huge part of my life, you know, learning how to be a part of a team, learning how to lead a team, um, learning work ethic, you know, how to not get too high when you win and not get too low when you lose, bounce back from, you know, missed shots or bad games and things like that. Um, and I think, it, you know, it's just really shaped who I am. I'm, I'm a hyper competitive person still to this day. And uh, it all got started when I was young. Yeah, I, I want to, hold on, hold on. Cause I know this story and, you wouldn't know to ask this stories is Scott 
tell them how you made the soccer team. Come on. I know this story yeah. of this story. So, so this is funny. So there, there's, uh, you know, school sports and club sports, like select yep. travel sports, right? Yep. So I was playing select travel soccer, but not high school soccer up until my junior year. I was playing basketball because they were kind of at the same time and I wanted to play everything. So my junior year in basketball, I had started to uh, grow my hair out. And the basketball coach, I was going to be a junior and, and I had a good chance of starting. Uh, worst case scenario would have been like the sixth man, you know, pretty important role. I started to grow my hair out and the coach was like, hey, Scott, you got to cut your hair. He told me and one of my buddies, Chris, you guys got to cut your hair. Like this is basketball, whatever. And I didn't believe him. I, I thought he was joking. And I came back, you know, practice the next couple of days. And he's like, no, seriously, like you guys need to cut your hair. So I, I reached out to my buddies who were on the high school soccer team and said, listen, I have no relationship with the high school soccer coach, but you guys know me. I've played with you forever. Like I for sure, you know, can be on the team. What's the spot that is like most likely that I could win a starting position? Okay. So they tell me the spot. It's like right fullback. Okay. So I quit huh. the basketball team because they were going to force me to cut my hair. I went to soccer tryouts with like two or three days left. The very first day of practice, I found the kid who was currently the starting right fullback that all my friends said was the biggest liability. And the first chance I got on a 50-50 ball, I knocked him flat on his back. Oof. And it, it, and the coach kind of you know made a huge deal. It was like, whoa, 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 what? Calm down. What's going on here? Da 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 da. And he's like, what's your name? Lease? All these guys said that you know how to play. I'm like, yep. Uh, you're going to remember my name now. <laughs> and made the team, stole that guy's starting spot, was a captain, you know, not that year, but by my senior year, I was captain of the high school soccer team. And, and we won the uh, first ever North State Championship in school history in my senior year. So <laughs> Richard loves to hear that kind of story. It gives you a, a, a little bit of insight into my personality. That's awesome. Whatever it takes. And and Scott, I know right before we hopped on, you said you grew up in the Buffalo region. Where'd you go to high school? Well, I didn't grow up there. My family is from there. Ah, got so it, got my, it. My parents grew up there and, and went to Niagara University. Got it. But I actually grew up in a small town called Chico, California, Northern got California. It. Yeah. Got it. Um, and, and I know you're based in Austin now. Richard, let's talk a little bit about you with regards to where'd you grow up um, and a little bit of your background before you kind of delved into this world. Yeah, uh, I grew up in Macon, Georgia. So in the deep south, as a, as a nice Jewish kid, there were three <laughs> other kids my age who were Jewish in our area. One of them was my cousin, uh, Billy, and, and this other girl who lived um, like 30 miles away in another town. So I got out as fast as I could. <laughs> so when I was 18, uh, I still go home. I have family there. I do like it, but I just, it just, you know, wasn't the right place for me. Um, Went to college in Arizona, U of A, as Scott said, then moved to Denver, then moved to Cleveland, and then moved to San Francisco, finally, where I live in the East Bay uh, right now. So um, what, what more do you want to like? I can tell you all kinds of stories, but. Uh... Uh, you know what I'm trying to direct at here is I want to know the moment in your younger years where you realized that sales was going to be a fundamental uh, part of, of how you succeed. And I, and I'm not necessarily looking for something in your career. Yeah. Um, no, I'm that's easy. A personal moment. Yeah. So, um, I was probably the only, I'm one of the few people where like going into sales just was, 
I don't know that I would call it an ambition, but it's where I started. And I really wanted to be in management. So, you know, my first job in high school was, you know, uh, just selling at the gap, right? Old school jeans. Like this is so long ago. People don't even know this. Gap didn't even have their own jeans. We just sold Levi's, right? Yeah. Like that's, that was it. And, um, but I always knew I was always the kid who didn't want to wear socks, didn't want to wear a tie, didn't want to conform. And I thought, oh, this is a good high school job. Sales, business, make some money. And I can wear jeans and t-shirts. When I get out of college, this is what I'll go do. And I'll get into management. And that's what I did. So my last semester in college, I went and got a job at The Gap. Um, was very entitled. Um, I thought for sure when I graduated, I'd get offered a management job. I did so bad, I got fired. And I had to beg. I don't know if Scott even knows this story. I had to beg to come back. Like, what are you doing? I'm This is my career. So they put me on the on-call thing. And they would make me, you know, I had to call in two hours ahead to see if I had to come in and had to like, memorize all the color names and do all this stuff. And, um, I, I earned my way back in. Um, and that's how I got my first management job at, out of college. So, you know, I don't think I knew that. That kind of reminds me of like, uh, being a substitute teacher where you call totally. in every morning and see if there's a job for you that day. Right. Huh. Totally. Really? That's what it was. So, um, yeah, that was, so that was, that was the pivotal one that confirmed I wanted to be in business sales and also really confirmed like, okay, you got to put in a little more effort than just, you know, thinking you're entitled. That doesn't mean my entitlement went away though. That still probably has hurt me in my life more than it has helped me. <laughs> well, you know, sales, sales is definitely humbling. And I think uh, one of the things that I've learned along the way is that in order to really be successful, you need to be okay with with falling down and getting back up. Okay with yeah. failure. I mean, like, um, okay with not necessarily um, landing where you thought you would. In your example, you know, getting fired from the gap when you thought, you know, you know, you deserve the world at that point. Um, and that happens over and over again in sales. Um, Scott, with regards to you, um, was there a moment, you know, in your younger years where you kind of started to lean towards sales as just a fundamental, uh, part of your life? Yeah, but it was very, very different story. Um, you know, I, I, we talked about my athletic career a little bit, but when I was 23 years old, I, I got super, super sick and, um, without going into tons of detail, proceeded to spend the next four years fighting for my life in the hospital. Um, had nine major surgeries, four life-saving surgeries, got addicted to opioids, had to kick off with all that. So everything that I had studied in university, both in as an undergrad and in grad school, uh, kind of flew out the window, right? In my mind, at least. And I had no real direction as I was reclaiming my health. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I, I had a college tennis teammate who coincidentally uh, was working for Richard at the time, who told me, hey, you should check out sales and uh, you know, give it a shot. Like you're charismatic, you, you know, like to argue or debate and you know, try to get things your way. Oh, He's like half giving me shit, right? But but also like legitimately saying you're the most competitive guy. No, you know, I do really well in this. And we had a couple other teammates who were also in sales. Um, and so that was really the first moment where somebody, you know, set me towards sales. I didn't have to have a, 
a degree in, in selling. I didn't have to have work experience in selling necessarily. I just had to find a, an early stage startup that was willing to you know, give somebody a shot. Um, so that, that's how I got into, got into sales right there. But the best part of the story is that his, yeah. his buddy, Tony, and we didn't know this till about three years ago when Tony told us, Tony brought Scott's resume to me, apparently said, you should interview my buddy. He's really competitive. He's on the tennis team. I played tennis with him. You know, he'd be really good in sales. And I wouldn't even interview Scott because he had no sales experience. And so I wouldn't even interview him. Fast forward, I don't know, a few years later, maybe three or five, five, five years later, maybe something like that. Maybe, maybe I, you know, it's 2008. I get laid off from that job huh. uh, recession. I call Tony and I'm like, Hey, do you know anything? You know, some humble pie for, a, you know, for a VP of sales to call a rep, at least for me, it was. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, you should call my buddy, Scott, talk to him. And I call Scott, Scott hires me. And I like take three steps down. Like I went from like VP of sales to like sales team manager. Yeah. And, uh, and then we didn't, re- we had no re- recollection of this story till about three years ago when Tony told us. So the, the best part is, is that, you know, I rejected Scott. And of course I take all the credit for his competitiveness because he's like, probably fuck that guy. He doesn't know. So, you know, so oh, that, yeah. that's the humorous part of this story. You, you fueled his fire. He came back and then he hired right. you ultimately. But it's, it's also, it's also funny because I bet if you just ask the general public about us and our personalities and, and whatnot, a, a lot of people think that I'm grouchier and Richard's more like the nice one, whatever. And he, 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 he is like, most of the time but then there's these moments like that where he's just like nah i'm not fucking interviewing this this guy right and it turns out he's the grouchy one yes and i'm actually potentially a little kinder at times so it's, it's, funny. it's a funny that. story yeah it's a funny story no you, you guys have a you guys have a good dynamic i can tell um and so scott i want to kind of ask you a question because i've noticed in my career um you know, everyone has their own unique background. Everyone has had their own adversity one way or another. But I found that people who have faced, um, you know, traumatic adversity um, generally go about sales in a very unique way in the sense that they've learned at one point, it can't get any worse than this, right? Well, what's the worst thing that could happen, right? And then you find a lot of people who maybe, um, you know, fortunately haven't faced that kind of situation. And then they go about sales worried about rejection. I want to talk a little about the perspective that you, your own experience uh, kind of gave you. Um, you know, in, in my world, that's where I feel sales came so strongly to me. I was at a point where, you know, I was going to either lose my life or not. So what's the worst thing that happened if I lose a sale? Uh, and, and so can you talk about that a little bit and, and how that maybe has played a role um, in your career? Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing that you just talked about. You know, I when I first got that first sales job, you know, I felt like the phone weighed a thousand pounds, and I was absolutely terrified. And it took me about three days before I kind of got a reality check and a gut punch. You know, it was like, what are you worrying about? You know, who cares if you get fired from this job? Who cares? If some buyer tells you to get lost or, or, you know, hangs up on you or whatever, who cares if your boss is, it's like, I have already dealt with the hardest thing, hopefully 
I'll ever go through in my whole entire life and come out the other side. So what I actually have is a superpower. I have perspective that other people don't have. I have a sense of urgency for other that other people might not have. I have a sense of appreciation for each and every opportunity put in front of me. So I should be fearless. And you know, I started to really lean into that. And every time in my career, I started to face you know challenges or adversity, including right now. You know, when it's a difficult economic uh, year and the market's tough for for people. I remind myself of that. Like I'm still healthy. I'm still able to work. I'm still able to do all these different things that I wasn't able to do before when I would have, you know, given given anything to have the opportunity to fail at a cold call. So having that perspective is just like so so important. And, and unfortunately, you know, for me at least, it it took four years of you know, near death experiences to, to really have it like sink in that lesson. And hopefully other people, you know, have it without going, having to go through, um, you know, difficult times like that. But it is always the thing I come back to. And I tell people this all the time in my, in my teaching and my coaching, you know, just think about the hardest thing you've ever been through. You don't have to tell me what it is. If you don't want to just think about it. Most of us would hear your story and think, I never could have got through that. I have no idea. How you, how you did it and fall back on that strength and fall back on when you were in those moments, what you would have given to have the opportunity to have this job, stretch to try to hit a quota, fail at hitting that deal. And you'll get this perspective of, you know what? Everything's going to be okay because nothing will be as bad as that. Everything's going to be okay. I have a follow-up question for Scott on this. And I have, I've never asked you this. How hard and or what was the moment when you said, because, you, you know, you, you went and played professional sports in Europe. You, you were going for it where you finally said, my body can't do this. I'm going to have to give up on that dream. And what was that like? Like, how, was there a moment? Did you like, when did you know? And then how did you reconcile that? Because I think that's that's just a mindset sales. I don't care what it is. Right. But I'm just curious to get yeah. You know, I held on to that for a really long time. On some level, I'm still holding on to it. You know, I, I want to be able to go do certain things and my body just physically won't allow me to do it. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the moment for me where it was like, this is forever going to be different was when they came in the first time and were like, we need to do surgery and we need to do it like now. And I, and I can remember sitting there going, well, um, what are we talking about here? You're going to, you know, literally remove an organ from my body. This is, <laughs> this is not something that most 24, 25 year old kids go through. Like this is for a, a forever kind of change. Right. Um, so that was the moment where I realized like this dream is, is over. Let's just say as far as Fully letting it go. Like I said, I don't know if I've really fully let it go. Well, when, you know? did you, when did you accept it? Right. Cause I, I, I know what I'm saying. I'm saying I, I don't know if that's acceptance or not. It was yeah. a recognition, but I don't know if I've ever fully accepted it because did you I try to go back and play like after you got out of the hospital after those four I, years. I did. I did. I, I, I built my body back up. It took a number of years. It took until I was, I think, 31, 32 years old. So you're talking four plus years of, 
slowly exercising. You know, I started surfing during this period of time and started trying to run and things like that. And I got myself back to where I was playing soccer again. Not at like a super high level, but, you know, high enough to, to satisfy me. And I was doing really, really well. And then I blew my knee out to bits. ACL, PCL, MCL, meniscus, all in one shot. And that moment was like, this is it. Done. But I'm telling you, even now, accepting that and uttering these words sucks. It still, it sucks. Yeah. You know, I want to go play adult league, beer league soccer. I want to go hit tennis balls with my brother. I want to go do this, that, and the other. And I just can't, you know, and I try. And when I push myself, my body rejects me and I get injured and all these things start to happen. But uh, I still don't know if I've fully been able to accept it because I try to replicate this competitiveness in so many things that I do in business and, you know, I don't know. I compete with Richard in terms of, you know, like who's... LinkedIn post does better or something stupid <laughs> like that, right? Like I'm always trying to replicate that competitive moment. Yeah. So I don't know if I've ever accepted and fully, fully let it go, Richard. I think that's truly innate. I mean, uh, you know, even in the sales world, the mindset is that the first no is is just your first step to yes. Um, and I think that um, you know, as people in this industry, um, you know, there's always just a glimmer of hope uh, that we can have what we want out there, and and I think that's what makes someone successful um, in this field. Um, I want to make sure that you know we kind of touch on both of you. I want to ask you, Scott, with regards to how Richard um, has inspired you over the years. Um, oh, and I'm kinda... excited for this! I want this recording. <laughs> I want to snip it. I am so excited. Putting Scott on the spot this is, this because like Richard's twice in a week. Twice in a week, someone's asked us to to describe us. So I'm I'm curious. This is good. I love this. Uh, um, well, Richard is certainly the one who pushed me to go into business for myself. Um, it took me a number of years to finally acquiesce and and do it. But he was always the one kind of in my ear saying, you know, you should do this. I think you'd be good at it. I'm doing really good at it. And, you know, in his way of poking and prodding me when he was kicking my butt, you know, in terms of income or able to go on this trip and do this thing with his flexibility and freedom that I didn't have. And so that, that, that's, that's the main thing that I would remember is he was the one who was telling me, go out on your own. Do you go remember out. what I said? Ah, well, I don't know specifically. I the- remember saying this to you, because this is why I love to take credit for all your success. <laughs> is, I said, Scott, I bet I still have this text, because I think I texted it. I appreciate that you like what I'm doing. I bet it annoys you on some level, because you probably think you can do it better than I can. No, I believe that. That's and he did 100 that 100% sounds like a text Richard would send me. And, That's where I'm a dick. That's and where my response to it would, is like quintessential Scott. It's like, okay, fucker. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I am going to try to do to try to be better than you now. Um, I'll also remember because I, I had this like half-hearted, I, you know, 
half-brained idea about surfing sales while we were on a family vacation together. And he also challenged me right then and there. It was like, well, why don't you build it then? Right. And I, and I remember saying to him, well, why don't you fucking help me build it? Is two people better than one kind of thing. And, and he said, yeah, okay, well, let's, if you, if you go for it, then, then I'll do it with you. So I think I sort of see him as somebody that's always like pushing me to try this, do this thing, because a lot of that stuff doesn't come supernaturally for me. You know, his, his, the podcast was his idea. We didn't start off, you know, surfing sales wasn't a podcast originally. It was yeah, just the event. It was just the event, the Surf and Sales oh, Summit. The summit. Oh wow! Yeah, Got and it. we were just doing these events, and uh, I guess this is our fourth year doing the podcast now. So there was two, three years of events with no podcast, and Richard was like, "You, we should do the podcast," you know. Um, so that that's that's my la- la- lasting memory of Richard. You know, from a a work and inspiration standpoint, is sort of like pushing me to get out of my comfort zone and do some stuff. You guys are an interesting couple. It's like it's like you guys. Uh, it it in a in a weird way, it sounds like a healthy marriage. Uh, yeah, it's like the, the odd couple. <laughs> yeah, entirely. Um, and uh, I, I could totally see the fit here. Um, let's just talk about surf and sales really quick to get everybody a bit background with regards to talk a little bit about where the idea came from. Um, the idea started with summits. Can you guys explain the premise of the summits? Go for it, Richard. You you take this. Yeah. So we were on vacation, you know, super fortunate that our wives uh, get along and um, and our kids get along. We have we each have two boys and they're all within a year of each other and they really do love hanging out together. So we decided to go to Costa Rica. The boys, had, my boys had just learned to surf. And I remember texting Scott, like, let's go to vacation to Costa Rica. Like I sent him this picture from Georgia. And he's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. And Scott's pretty notorious for, yeah, and then sometimes not actually instigating it. But as soon as I said surfing, he was all over it. So we go down there for Thanksgiving, and like Scott said, we're walking off the beach. He's like, why the fuck do we got to go to Omaha to the Hampton Inn? No offense to anybody in Omaha or the Hampton mm-hmm. Inn, you know, for a sales conference. How come nobody does something here? And I said, that's a really good idea. I said, you know, why don't you do it? And he's like, well, why don't you help me? And sort of came there, and, and the whole premise and and then we brought in our our third partner Jeff Coleman, who's now a f- good friend of mine, but was really good friends with Scott. And he's like the logistics master. He rents the houses and gets the photographers and gets the surfing lessons and gets the like. He just organizes the whole thing. And the whole premise was smaller is better, right? You know, I've been to Dreamforce, which is fun for what it is, but you know, you're one of fifty or a hundred thousand people. What about those intimate conversations? And the best part of those big events are. As I always call them, the in-between moments where you meet some random person and that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, they're all often at a bar and there's so much booze involved. And, and so we really wanted to create something very different. And you know, Scott's idea and Jeff's idea was, well, let's keep it a little more small and intimate where you can get to know each other. And what's so unique is that, you know, we go down to Costa Rica, it's about 15 to 18 people. Um, we spend about four hours a day on content. They're, you know, couple hours a day with surf lessons for those who want to surf. If you don't surf, you don't have to. No one's forcing it. And the rest of the time, you're having those in-between moment conversations. You know, you're sitting there talking to someone you would never get to talk to. There's an SDR talking to a founder of, of, a, of a, you know, Series B or C startup. Where does an SDR get to do that? Where does a founder get to hear an SDR perspective that's not one of their own, right? And or it becomes an interview. 
or deals get made. And it's not like a where it happens, it just sort of happens organically. Um, and so we create a lot of those in-between moments and it's very chill. You know, it's not a, it's not a drunk fest. It's definitely not a bro fest. We, you know, every night, every first night we have this, like, you know, no asshole policy. Nobody's ever been sent home, but we will, if anybody does something stupid. Um, and that's just sort of, so we've just made it really intimate that way. And then the other cool thing is, you know, you know, when you come down with Shoy, right. One of the things we will do is, you know, we turn to the people coming and we'll say, if there's a if there's a topic that you're passionate about and you want to present for 30 or 45 minutes for one of the sessions, come do it. We've had people do um I do stuff on mental health, which is not something that normally happens. I do Scott does stuff on how to create your side hustle. Um, you know, Jeff does one about storytelling, like all these different things. We have a we have a beach challenge where you know we let a couple of people come in and present their business challenge and we'll divide the group into two. And it's like a consulting practice. Like you get like 20 minutes to present. Each team has 10 minutes to ask questions. And then the teams go off and they have to present, create and present their advice back. So here is, you know, here's someone like you coming in and you get all this free consulting advice. All these people have never done a consulting project. They've never been a part of one in any way, shape or form. And so it just becomes this great thing. And oh, by the way, we're doing it at sunset on the beach. Like, like, you know, it's like, nothing better than that. Right. So that's probably a little bit longer version you were looking for, but that's no, that's great. I could describe it. That's great. Did I miss anything? No, you nailed it, man. As a runner, there's nothing I love more than to explore new areas when I travel. For years, I've had to deal with the hassle of packing up loads of sweaty, smelly, wet articles of clothing on my way back home. And for years, I believed that there was no better option than the plastic bag that I had to scour to find on the last day of my trip. Then I was introduced to the Camabag and it changed everything about how I travel. Designed for us all, from yogis to endurance athletes and everyone in between, Cama's premium signature bag layers innovative fabrics that preserve your favorite gear for all your activity to come. The Cama bag is constructed using durable, high quality fabrics. Surrounded by a thick waterproof shell, the unique inner layers work together to absorb odor and wick moisture. Gone are the unpleasant smells, bacteria growth from sustained wetness, and those single-use plastic bags that quite frankly accomplish nothing. Visit www dot camafit spelled c-a-m-a-f-i-t dot com and use code mile 40 to take 15 percent off your order and enjoy the endless odor and moisture free days ahead the camera bag absolutely changed the game for me as a runner and i know it will do the same for you you know as you were saying all that i mean a lot of the topics that you hit on especially with regards to them, some of those sessions when it comes to uh, mental health in particular mental health has come from this podcast numerous times and it's just a subject that's just so important to so many people across industries and and the fact that you touch on it um with regards to you know what you're doing with sales and summit is is very sorry surf and sales excuse me is very very uh special um before we got on you had told me how important community was to you with regards to uh, the focus, not just of surf and sales, uh, but your grander mission. And clearly the summit is where community is built. Um, can you talk a little about the community um, that you have um, been engaging with over the last couple of years? And um, is it across industries? Obviously it's across different levels as, as you kind of mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll talk about mine and Scott's, 
this is one of those parts where Scott's better at me than something. Um, or he'll take an idea that I do and he'll like ten hmm. X it, which is okay. Um, only a little jealousy. Um, you know, as my 15 year old says, Scott owes me 25% of his business. <laughs> Uh, but so I've, I've always been a community guy. I started a long time ago with sales hacker when LinkedIn had communities that were really, really robust. Um, and just giving away advice for free. I just sort of realized like, Oh, that's good for me. That's good for my career. That's good for helping other people. It's altruistic. I feel good when I help. It started for me when I didn't have a job. And I finally was like, Oh, this gives me value and worth. Not that that is my value. But I feel like if I can help someone else, even when I'm down and out, that's good for me mentally and it's good for someone else. That's where it started for me. So I started with Sales Hacker. I then became part of the, there's another great group called Modern Sales Pros that Pete Kazanji runs, um, a big part of that one. Uh, the surf and sales community, you know, every session we have, we have um, WhatsApp groups and, you know, we've got 10 WhatsApp channels going from every session, you know, over the years. So, um, so I'm a big fan of that. Um, Scott's taken that in and put it on, you know, massive healthy steroids. So I'll let Scott sort of explain his his version of community. Yeah, you know, the surf and sales community is, is super tight knit, but it's really small. And it intentionally is only going to grow by 40 or 50 people uh, per year because we do these summits two, three times a year. And you know, there's 15 to 17 people not in the founding group who come. So it, it grows small, but it's really tight. Right. And, and so the, the idea when, when COVID and the pandemic first happened was where do I, what can I do to, to congregate salespeople and sales leaders? Like people don't have anywhere to hang out. They don't have anywhere to talk shop or bitch and moan or have a cocktail. So I started this community called Thursday Night Sales and, and Thursday Night Sales turned into the world's largest virtual sales happy hour wow. during a three-year run that we just uh, signed off of um, earlier this year. And you know, we were having four or 500 people every Thursday night uh, <clears throat> at, our, at our events. right? And then what I've done after that is I created a company called GTM United. It's uh, a sales and revenue community combining people from all different functions. It's not just sales. And there's health challenges and, and meetups live and virtual, in person and virtual. And, you know, just kind of taking some of the things that I've learned from surfing sales and Thursday night sales and, and applying and pushing forward. So um, it's a big part of, you know, what we do. You could argue that two of the businesses that I run outside of my consulting business are community based. Um, and, and Richard, at least one of his. Um, so it's a, it's a big part of what we do. And that doesn't even count our LinkedIn community, the greater LinkedIn community that we engage with and interact with every day. And we've got, you know, 200,000 people, um, you know, between the two of us, something like that, that we are connected with and who follow us on LinkedIn. So it's, it's an everyday thing that we work towards, um, you know, building, growing and helping people out. Got it. Got it. Um, you know, one of the things that I think folks such as the three of us can notice is when we come across, you know, <clears throat> genuine people in the sales industry and, you know, being that we've done this for so long, um, you know, we can tell the difference between someone who's just good at sales and then someone who we'd want to work, want to work with, um, in sales. Um, and, and I kind of want to 
use this as an opportunity to uh, knock off some of the misconceptions around the industry in general. You know, I'm a big believer that in sales, it's not about you know winning all the time. It's it's about you know both people on both sides of the desk kind of coming away with something uh, better than what they started out with. Um, and you know, given your background and a lot of the work that you do. I get the sense that you teach sales from a very holistic uh, approach. Um, and it's not necessarily about um, winning the deal every time, but it's about the right deal um, and and um, the longer term impact of how you go about it. Can you, either of you, speak a little bit with regards to um, how your sales approaches have been refined over the years? I mean, Richard, I'm thinking about you starting off at, at Gap and how things started out. I'm sure how you sell now is a lot different. Um, you know, it's not necessarily about making the numbers every time as much as it's about um, making sure that you know there's a longer term impact for your business and for the the client. It's interesting you say that because I don't think I had that realization until I was probably you know keep in mind that was that I mean I was 16 in high school, 22 in college. I don't think I had the empathetic realization until my thirties when I started doing therapy, right? So I was still sort of this, and still I am angry, entitled guy. I'm just a little less angry. Um, and then I figured it out. And then once I started my therapy, I realized how much of this was business and how much business was life. And, and then part of that was, was really trying to sit and listen to people and then realizing my whole impatience with people like that's the hardest part for me is like i was the old school you know you know laptop you know screen manager people would come in for one-on-ones and i'd be trying to answer an email at the same time like i was just i was horrible you know um but somehow i could charm my way into some leadership role i don't know so from that i i started to learn like what it really meant and how to become more of a human. And that's, you know, I, you know, my mantra now is that when people ask me, you know, what do I do? I tell them I teach reps how to earn the right to ask questions, which questions to ask and when. So there's a little bit more empathy built into how I do everything. And so that's for me, that's where that that piece came in. I, I can go deep on mental health and how that all came in for me. But um, I think that's probably the best answer for your question. Before we go to Scott, was there um a specific um event or um situation that arise that you know kind of led you to um seek out um you know help and, and if it's personal that's fine but no, no, no. I, yeah. I i share this story i'm like scott like this is my superpower so yeah. um you know i woke up frozen in bed like that like not kidding like i couldn't move i was in a ball i was crying and you know like all kids you know you know, even at the, as an adult, I called my mom and she's like, well, why don't you come home, come back to Georgia and just chill out. And I was living in San Francisco and my immediate response, I didn't even know if I was going to say it was, yeah, but if I do that, the city wins. And I was having a hard time fitting in to this late nineties internet bubble where people are making all this money and I'm feeling inadequate. Um, being sold in newspaper ads. Um, so that was the quintessential moment for me. Um, and then learned that I have depression, uh, not a severe version. I've never wanted to hurt myself or hurt others. Um, and started my journey to, to better mental health and, and then getting that humanity in myself 
and then learning how to do that in business. And then even a few years ago, I, re- I learned you know, through one of my kids that I have ADHD. So now I take medication for that. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of all those things. And, and those things become my superpower because now I can see them coming before they hit me. And because of that, I can, you know, I, have, I, I can at least choose how I'm going to let something happen a little bit. And it um, doesn't always go away. It's still there, but I've never, you know, it's never terrible. Like it's not all that terrible stuff. But that that for me was the the moment. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that one important thing to kind of point out here is that between the both of you, you guys both re- both referred to these moments in life as being your ultimate superpowers and not your crutches. Um, and I think that's something that unifies you and really kind of sticks true to what the message of mile 40 is all about. And so, you know. I'm really glad that we we kind of got there because there are multiple people listening to this show right now that could be wondering, you know, these guys are talking a lot about sales and, you know, how sales impacts every part of their life, but what they don't necessarily realize and where I think we just got is the fact that there's this ability to refine, to reposition, to affirm the moments in life where we think we are weak and, you know, Richard, we have a huge base of listeners here from New York. And, you know, the concept of the city breaking you and not making it, uh, you know, you talk about San Francisco, which is right up there with New York. That is just a unanimous uh, kind of experience that so many people have to go through here. And I remember myself, I mean, I came in wanting to work on Wall Street in the middle of the financial crisis. Um, and you know, the city will break you. Um, and so thank you so much for kind of sharing that and and giving us something all something, something to relate to. Um, Scott, Richard's answer was so good that I lost my train of thought here. Uh, and forgot what my next question is, is for you, but, um, let me ask you with regards to, he mentioned his mantra. Are there any mantras that you uh, personally live by, or that anything that you know you kind of lean in on with regards to um, you know keeping your narrative going? I don't know if I have any big mantras necessarily that I that I live by. I, I've been talking a lot in the last few years about um, kind of shrinking the delta between idea and action. And, you know, kind of making decisions faster, trusting your gut a little bit more, not overanalyzing and overthinking things, taking some chances and stuff like that. Um, I'm a big believer in action over words. So don't tell me, just do. Um, those are the two that come to mind. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a big, I don't sound like I'm waking up every morning and like writing out my mantra in a journal or, yeah. You know, listening to this like same meditative message, you know, through my stereo or anything like that. Um, but I do, I do try to keep those two messages in mind that I mentioned to you. Um, for both of you, and either one of you can answer this question. I have yep. one for Scott. Yeah, Scott. Scott's mantra, and he lives by it, and he does this when he has jobs with people. Is um, give the little guy a shot. I can't tell you how many people I've seen on his sales floor never would have thought they'd be good in sales, come from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of challenges and issues. And he helps them find themselves and in that. And so, and and I even know, again, because I know the stories where, you know, he's always said he was the 
undrafted, you know, free agent who makes the team yeah. kind of thing. That's his mentality. And he'll go draft those undrafted free agents and he will make them amazing, not just at sales, but help them. You know, he finds ways to help them quit. He'll create a challenge to get them to quit smoking because he knows that every time they take a break, that hurts the sales performance. Like he'll, he'll, anyway. So for me, it's for Scott, I think is, you know, give, give the little person a shot. Give that person who wouldn't get a shot their shot. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that, that recruiting philosophy, I have framed it before as hire somebody who can do, not somebody who has done. And we default to hiring people based on their resume or previous experiences way too much and cutting out people who, for one reason or another, you know, haven't had it, don't have the same thing on their, their resume. That doesn't mean they can't do the job. Yeah. Right. And, and that bias towards experience uh, is really damaging. It hurts diversification of hires. It hurts DEI efforts. It hurts you know, women trying to get into sales leadership roles. It's, it's really dangerous, in my opinion, um, to over-index on experience. So I, I, that would be my third one. I'm glad Richard brought that up. Would be, you know, hire somebody who can do, not necessarily somebody who has done. Richard to the rescue there. And I think that is so... That's usually the way it goes, Richard to the rescue. <laughs> I think that is so, so, so important and and something that I believe in, in firmly. Um, and honestly, something that's been a testimony to the guests that have been on this show, because a lot of the guests that have been on this show so far have succeeded when the world told them, you know, you don't necessarily have the resume for success. Um, and I, I think to your point around diversification and, and, um, you know, getting the right voices in the room, it's just about giving people a chance. Um, and I'm going to dig into this a little bit. We only have a couple more minutes, but I want to ask with regards to how you've been going about maybe influencing this new behavior. Are you, um, you know, talking about this during your summit or are you, you know, somehow using your um using your platform uh to push home this message because i think it is something that needs to be amplified well i i think the answer is yes to all of those things i I, in the same way though it wasn't one of the first things that i thought of and richard reminded me it doesn't mean i like make it a focal point and maybe i should um but it naturally comes up you know i've i've written about it periodically on linkedin we certainly talk about it at events that, that we have and podcasts that we're on and, and things like that. And, you know, I, I think both Richard and I feel a little bit of a, a weight of responsibility to, to do something with the microphone that we do have that, you know, is maybe a little more important than here's my best 30 second sales pitch, yeah. you know, or, you know, best subject line to get somebody to open your email. Like, I don't really fucking care about that stuff, to be honest with you, at this point in my in my career. What I do care about is some of this other stuff yeah. that we're starting to touch upon and doing what we can to, you know, kind of send the elevator back down for other people who, um, you know, need a shot, need somebody yeah. who, who can believe in them and, and help them get where they're trying to go. And, and you know... It's a little bit of the underdog kind of chipped on the shoulder stuff that I think that we both have. Um, so I don't know if Richard wants to add anything, but that's kind of how I, I think about it. Yeah, I, I agree. I 
I think there's a balance. Um, I'm again, I'm, you know, even from my book perspective, like I'm very tactical, right? So I will talk about the subject lines and how to do a better pitch and all that stuff. Um, in combination with these other topics of mental health or some other management leadership, best practices, that kind of stuff. Um, so I think, and I think that's where we have a, a different take on this stuff because, you know, he'll be like, I don't want to write about that stuff anymore. Everybody knows it. And I'm like, no, they don't. We're just tired of saying it a hundred times, you know? So, you know, so many times can Springsteen seem born to run with, with, you know, the same level of influence and yeah, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know how they do it. Yeah. So well, that's, a, that, that's a definite weakness of, of mine is I get tired of saying the same things. Yeah. But Scott, if the, the paycheck's pretty big, buddy, it's pretty good. Yeah, I suppose if, if I was getting Bruce's paycheck, maybe it'd be easier. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think it's there. I also think even in the stuff, everything we write comes from some level of thought. Um, even if we do write, or if I write something around, you know, a best practice in sales, it's coming from my heart and at least I, I believe it's coming from my heart of, I want to help others. Right. So there's this altruistic piece. Um, and yeah, we sometimes get caught up in the vanity of the metrics and all those things. Um, but that's also why we're writing because we're trying to find things that resonate for people. And so that's the good thing. So I think it comes through if it's not direct, it's definitely there subliminally. Got it. Um, I, I was thinking about this as as you all were speaking. Um, adaptability. When I think about how the sales motion has changed um, over the last 15, 20 years, even in the last three, four years in particular, um, you know, being adaptable. Um, I think we're kind of in this period now where, you know, there's people who are perhaps trying to uh, embrace the new ways. And there are people who are trying to stick to the old ways of doing business. And there are people who are in the middle uh, with regards to taking the good of the new ways, holding on to the good of the older ways, so on and so forth. How do you bridge this? Um, or how do you have conversations really around um, just the fact that business is moving at such a fast pace right now? Um, and uh, you know, talking about ad adaptability in general right now? I mean... Um, is it, is, it, is it that different? Ha, has has business ever not been moving at an incredibly fast pace? I mean, I wonder if we went back in time 200 years, if people would have said the same thing in 100 years, if they would have said the same thing. Uh, maybe the, the distance covered in terms of the speed is a little bit bigger. The leaps that we take now are, are bigger, but I think we've always had to adapt and change. You know, the way that that I sold the very first time I ever got on the phone is different than the way that we sell now. The way that we would build a, a sales organization is different now than it was back then. The way people go fundraise now is different than it was a few years ago. Um, and you can cling to the past all you want, but you're going to lose. Yeah. It's a yeah. losing battle. Yeah, you know, it is. It's whether or not you're going to be a early adopter or you know a late bloomer is up to you but you're eventually going to switch you know i get a kick out of people who try to tell me well we've been doing this business business this way for 50 years scott it's like okay uh quick question do you have an iphone all right you didn't have one 50 years ago do you have a laptop didn't have one of those 50 years ago either it's like give me a break man yeah you evolve you change your tactics 
just because this new one maybe scares you a little bit, that's a different kind of conversation. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I, there, I have a couple of thoughts around this one. Um, is that, you know, some of that depends on the generation, I think, right? Um, you know, there's just certain things, like I'm 54 now, there's certain things I'm probably not going to change because I just don't want to deal with it. And I'm just not going to, even though they'll probably, you know, and I'm sure my kids and my grandkids, if I ever have them one day, will say, dad, it'd be easier. And we're like, yeah, just like the generation above us. Um, and it's interesting in sales in particular, the whole idea of sales is that we are the instigators, judge, jury, and executioner of change for people. Like that's what we're selling is change and better. And yet I feel like we're the most stubborn when it comes to changing ourselves, right? Because we get so habitual. And part of that is because salespeople like some level of routine. It's repetitive. It comes easier and that kind of stuff. So some of it is that, but I, 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 that is not my quote. Someone I heard it a couple of weeks ago and it just really resonated with me. We are instigators of change, yet we're the last ones to want to change ourselves, even if we know that it could probably improve what we're doing. That to me is a big piece of it. I love that. And I can't honestly think of a better way to, to close this out. Um, you know, I had other questions, but I think that, um, that really kind of hits home right now with regards to um, how we look at the time right now and, and what's to come ahead. Um, you know, before I just finally close the things out, I want to make sure um, if there was anything else that you all wanted to uh, touch on with regards to uh, maybe the future of surf and sales and um, a vision that you have, whether it be in the short term or in the long term, um, I want to give you the floor really quick. Nah, the future of surf and sales is late November, early December. We've got two sessions. Uh, I think they're about 60 to 70% sold out. So we've got a few seats left for both uh, session 10 and uh, 11. Um, and, you know, you can check out our podcast if you think that we might have something interesting to say or you just want to listen to two older guys rant at each other and every now and then say something nice to each other. Check out the surf and sales podcast and the uh event is surf and sales s-a-l-e-s dot com i love that uh thank you both for coming on today really really appreciated you uh richard thank you for making this happen it was a pleasure meeting you and um, i can't wait for this episode to drop sounds good us too thank you thanks so much Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of the Mile 40 Podcast, go ahead, subscribe, leave a review, and share the word. Thank you for being a part of the Mile 40 family. And let's unite in showing the world that comebacks are always greater than setbacks.